have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Now, a lot of foundational economists have argued that economic liberty is the special sauce that drives widespread prosperity and make uh, make people secure in their property rights, let them figure things out for themselves, and they engage in mutually beneficial trade that makes everyone better off. Now, Bob Lawson is part of a project that attempts to take the next step by measuring economic liberty and seeing what its effects are on countries around the world. Bob is the director of the Bridgewell Institute at SMU Cox, and I want to talk to him about what he's found and whether this will shift the Overton window. Bob, welcome. James, thank you for having me. What is the Economic Freedom of the World Index? So, like you said in your intro, we've been debating for a very long time about how we should organize uh, our economic system. And some people, starting with Adam Smith and going on through the ages, really, John Stuart Mill, in the more recent century, people like Milton Friedman, Friedrich Hayek, We've argued that uh, the system of natural liberty, which was Adam Smith's phrase, is a good way to organize the system. But, you know, the problem is we've been debating about it, and, and there are people who are on the other side of that debate, people like socialists, Karl Marx, and others. And what we've lacked in this debate for the last 200-some years is empirical rigor. And so uh, I, along with my co-authors, uh, Jim Gortney, Walter Block, originally, we started working on a measurement of economic freedom, trying to put a number, uh, a quantitative number, on how closely countries are following the sort of economic freedom, economic liberty uh, uh, lessons that Adam Smith taught in The Wealth of Nations. And so at the end of the day, we're just uh, creating a yardstick so we can hopefully have a more informed conversation about you know, what works and what doesn't work out there. What has been some of the challenges of uh, defining that yardstick? Well, you know, freedom's a fuzzy concept. I mean, you know, it, it, it's not as fuzzy as you know, we see happiness indexes out there now. I think happiness is a lot fuzzier than freedom, but it's a fuzzy concept. So trying to find real data that exists. And, and for us, we set out with the goal of rating a large number of countries. It was our, countries are our sort of unit of analysis. And we wanted to rate a large number of countries. And that means that we're talking like Congo, Pakistan, you know, Sierra Leone, you know, Myanmar. And we knew from the get-go that we were going to, we're, de we're dealing with real-world data. We knew from the get-go that um, we were going to have to make some compromises. You know, the, the data that we get for these countries is ugly, it's messy, it's polluted by, you know, all kinds of problems. And so we set out to create a fairly, at least initially, a fairly simple index that measured the key elements of economic freedom. And, but the biggest challenges are data problems. I mean, just, you know, we know what economic freedom is roughly from having read Smith and Hayek. Uh, but, you know, putting actual real world data together that reflects that freedom, underlying freedom, is the hard challenge. Can you give me an example of some of the messiness involved in that? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, some of the things are relatively easy. I mean, we think uh, governments that spend a lot of money, that tax and spend, are, are violating people's economic freedom. 
Uh, but and that's relatively easy to measure. The, you know, the World Bank and the IMF do a reasonably good job of collecting, even from you know the Congos of the world, collecting government spending data. But we also think property rights are critical for economic freedom. Uh, and how do you measure the security of property rights? Uh, you know, and for a long time, for actually the first almost decade of the project, we struggled to find anything that reflected property rights. But now what we have is surveys. So we have a few cross-country surveys. The World Economic Forum does one. Uh, the Economist Intelligence Unit uh, has, an, has another uh, survey type product. And they, they kind of just ask people like, hey, in your country, how, you know, how, how impartial are the judges? In your country, how secure do you feel about your, your property rights? And we use those surveys to get us a, a feel for that. Um, so, but you know, surveys are are messy, right? Surveys are surveys. And economists like me, at least my training was always like hard data is better than surveys. So one of the things we have to do with the index is kind of compromise on, you know, there's no, there's no hard number. It's not like inflation or tax rates, uh, things like uh, regulations and property rights, especially are, are fuzzier. And we're going to end up using survey like products to, to get at them. Mm -hmm. And you guys have been doing this for well over a decade, I think approaching two now, right? That's closer to three. We, we first, okay. The very first proto-index we ever published right. was, or came up with was 1992, so mm -hmm. uh, three decades. Uh, the first edition of the report came out in 96, so yeah. we've been going, you know, two plus decades, Excellent. all of my career. Yeah, so it's given you some time to try and uh, refine it, respond to criticisms, try and find better ways of, of getting at uh, getting at the concept. So I guess the important question is, what is economic freedom associated with? Well, at the end of the day, that was the goal, right? Once we have a, a rating system for economic freedom, and just to give you some context for the countries, you know, uh, historically Hong Kong has always been the highest rated country. Um, and we kind of knew that going in. If you saw Milton Friedman's Free to Choose video series back in the 80s, he celebrated Hong Kong's freedom. They don't have any tariffs. The tax rates are really low. Um, it, it's really almost as close to you know Adam Smith's vision as any place on earth's ever gotten. And then at the bottom of the scale, we have countries like Venezuela uh, and Zimbabwe and, and, and so forth. So we've got this scale that runs sort of from Hong Kong to Venezuela, and then which which in 165 countries, and you know, is our current set. Uh, the good news is that now we've got a number. It, it tells us, okay, Hong Kong is freer, Venezuela is the least free, the U.S. is sixth. You know, I'm making numbers up now because I don't have them all memorized. But <laughs> Ireland is you know 30th or whatever. And then we look for correlations, and like, oh my gosh, um, uh, countries that are higher on our economic freedom scale have higher incomes, they grow faster, they uh, invest more, they have lower infant mortality, less poverty, pretty much every metric that we have of socioeconomic progress correlates in a way that economic freedom looks pretty good. Economic freedom correlates positively with good social outcomes. Um, and that, that was, you know, 30, 40 years ago, that was actually a debatable question. And now that we have the data in hand, it's really much less debatable. Very few people will challenge the basic notion that, that market-oriented countries, countries that pursue economic freedom, will have better economic outcomes. They may have a yeah, but, or a complaint on some margin, but the, the big story, we've pretty much won. Having, having, having turned the debate into an empirical debate, we've kind of won the debate. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it's 
what you found is that countries with a lot of economic liberty tend to have better economic outcomes. Um, but, but isn't that just a step short of what you really need, which is they have better outcomes because of economic liberty? That's right. Uh, so, you know, there's two issues. One is uh, causality is, is always a challenge in social science. If A and B are correlated, it doesn't necessarily mean A caused B. I mean, sometimes B causes A, and sometimes C causes both A and B. We have all these sort of, uh, you know, challenges with empirical work. But, um, you know, I'm an academic, and I, I, I follow the academic literature pretty closely related to this index. And there are a number of good ways of handling, you know, that. And, and those studies confirm the sort of more correlative studies. Um, the second thing, and I think it related especially to the Overton window, uh, which is a wonderful concept, by the way, um, is how do you get more economic freedom? Suppose it was the case that we all, we all agree that economic freedom was a, was a critical ingredient for social and economic progress. The next question is, well, how do you get it? You know, how do you enact policies like that? Um, and that's, of course, what the origin window concept is about, is how you widen the window or how do you, you get economic freedom ideas, things like lower taxes, more secure property rights, lower regulations. How do you get those things into that window so that we can get them enacted? And that's something that uh, I have to be honest, I'm a little bit uh, fuzzy on myself. Well, we'll get into that. But, uh, but before we cover that, I, I'm curious about one thing, which is like now that we've studied things, we're putting some numbers in it, we're trying to, to find this real world effects of this economic freedom concept. I mean, one of the benefits of the empirical revolution is that you find things that you didn't expect in the theory. So are there any bad outcomes associated with economic freedom? So the only one that I think comes close, it really stands out in my mind, is there are uh, two or three papers, and I wrote a counter paper, so I don't think uh, this is, you know, settled. But the one that I've seen is obesity. You know, oh. it's, it's, it's a real thing. You know, in the United States, uh, obesity is a serious, uh, some people call it a public health, it's really a personal health problem, but it's a serious personal health problem for millions of Americans, diabetes and heart disease, stroke and so forth, that is associated with obesity. And it's becoming a bigger problem in the rest of the world. Um, and uh, if you look at just correlations, uh, countries that have more economic freedom, well, we know they get richer. Mm -hmm. and one of the sort of unfortunate consequences of people when they get rich is they eat more. Uh, and uh, so obesity is kind of the one of the few sort of negative um, things out there that I think that's out there. The other one is, is highly debatable, but the one you'll hear is inequality. Mm. So, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, the, the common claim is that that economic freedom delivers the sort of economic goods. Market market oriented countries grow faster, get higher incomes. But the the yeah, but is yeah, but economic inequality explodes. It, it, you know, most of the gains go to the rich, and less goes to the poor, or something along those lines. Um, that turns out, and we have now several dozen peer-reviewed academic papers. Now, this is not just the now a, you know, a small literature. We have a pretty good-sized literature, and it turns out uh, there really isn't a lot of strong evidence one way or the other on whether economic freedom causes more inequality. There's some studies that say it does, some studies that say it doesn't, but sort of average study gets like no effect, you know, null effect. Um, you know, so there I think what, we, what the challenge for us now is how do we percolate that research finding uh, to like the general 
you know, population, the general audiences out there. Because I think a lot of people think economic freedom has a, as a negative in terms of inequality when the research that we've got, uh, and again, quite a lot of research now, doesn't back that, that viewpoint up. What's going on there? Because you would think that like allowing people to be billionaires, which is not a thing that most places do, would obviously improve in, <laughs> yeah. or like mean greater income inequality. Yeah, well, in the limit, that might be the case. And there may be some <laughs> cases where, um, you know, I imagine North Korea, for example, is, I mean, there are some very rich people there, but uh, there's most people are pretty equal to each other, equally poor. And so that's one way to achieve equality. But, you know, uh, the, the, the places that interfere with economic freedom the most, the pe- places that tax, regulate, um, tariff the most, uh, the people that have the sort of croniest type economic systems where the judges are, you know, corrupt and bribery is endemic and so forth. These, these places have elites within them that have gamed the system. And they turn out to be just as, you know, elite oriented. You know, the one percenters in Venezuela, which is the lowest country, are, are really quite well off relative to the 99 percenters in Venezuela. Um, so, you know, it, if you look at the real world, the real world we in, we're in, uh, sure, some countries like the United States have a fairly high degree of inequality, but um, you know, countries at the bottom of the scale like Venezuela have a equally high degree of inequality, despite their rhetoric of being socialist and you know all the, the socialist rhetoric that you hear from Venezuelan, uh, the Venezuelan government. Uh, you know, despite that rhetoric, Venezuela is extraordinarily unequal in its economic system. So. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the countries that are most celebrated for the e- their equality, the countries like the Nordic countries, uh, Sweden, Denmark, especially, are celebrated for their uh, socioeconomic equality. Well, it turns out they're pretty high on our index. Uh, Denmark's, I think, in the top 10. Venezuela, uh, Sweden is, you know, top 30. Uh, and, you know, out of 165, they're much closer to the sort of U.S. and Hong Kong system than they are the Venezuelan system. So again, when you look at the real data, it's it's far from obvious that economic freedom, you know, brings along with it a lot of inequality. Now, the policy conclusions that you've got are seem to be pretty clear. It's like you're you're measuring economic freedom. You've got some things that are that are in that index. If you want to do better, uh, you can improve some of those things. So like, you know, uh, protecting the integrity of your legal system, which turns out to be really complicated in some places, but other things like, uh, 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 or and do less of other things like uh, you know increasing the regulatory burden of on imports and exports. Uh, do you think that that or like have you seen people use your index to argue for more economic freedom? Yes, I mean obviously academics do it, but in the more policy realm, sort of the realm that uh, the Mackinac Institute yeah. runs through, in uh, we do see some you know uses of the index in this direction. The country of Georgia, the former Soviet Republic, uh, explicitly references the Economic Freedom of the World Index at the at the ministerial level. It's a ministerial goal to go up in the index. Hmm. Uh, and they have, actually. Uh, the Georgian government, especially the previous government, even the current government, has really improved. That uh, Georgia's in the top 20 in the index now. Again, that's pretty impressive when it was a, you know, a socialist country as late as 1991, right? So, uh, so, so, the, so the government of Georgia, it's a small country, but they've explicitly used it. In other countries, for example, in South Africa, which is not a small country, 
the ANC, which is a left-wing, uh, nominally a socialist ruling party, the ANC will, routine, will routinely call our partners there and ask, hey, if we pass this legislation, what's going to happen to the index? Mm-hmm. And the answer is almost always bad, like the index <laughs> is going to go down because the ANC's policies are really pretty terrible. But it does show that the that even like socialist ruling parties like the ANC in South Africa, they're actually paying attention to the index. Uh, obviously, the Hong Kong government pays attention. They're number one. Well, I should say they they were number one. Uh, um, by the time your listeners hear this, we will have released a new report, and Hong Kong will have fallen to second place, and Singapore will be the number one country, and that'll be the first time. But the Hong Kong government has also celebrated the Economic Freedom Index and, and their number one position. They're going to be mad, I think, when they, when they find out that they're no longer number one. The data are the data, though, and the data we use have, have caused them to fall fall in, in the ranking just a just a spot what did georgia do to improve yeah, so their georgia, rankings you know in the, in the the first 10 years of sort of independence from the soviet union georgia fought civil wars and it was pretty much a disaster uh, but in the middle part of the 2000s around 2004 or 5 a very pro western uh, government took over the president's name was shakashvili sort of a columbia educated law, law lawyer he wore like you know italian suits spoke good english and and he really ushered in a series of uh, liberal, or you might even call them libertarian reforms. Uh, and uh, they they drastically reduced taxes. That the you know the old Soviet tax system that the Georgians inherited was extraordinarily high taxes and complicated. And they lowered taxes to an across now the current it's an across the board twenty percent tax that includes the like the VAT. So everything is twenty percent. It's very flat and and pretty low. They have almost no tariffs. Uh, on imports uh, into the country. Um, they opened up their country to travel, even. They don't have visas, including for Russians, somewhat controversially, uh, even today. So Georgia really, really moved a long, long way uh, towards towards economic freedom under that government. They the, the new government, which is less ideologically friendly to uh, economic freedom, hasn't done much to undo those those policies, though. And that's that's the good news. The the previous regime, the, the policy stuck, at least so far, in Georgia. So I've I've written several papers about Georgia. I can go on, but in the interest of time, I, I will uh, save you the, the pain. Well, no, I think that's very interesting, uh, especially yeah. because like every country is different. Everyone's responding to the own yeah. political incentives in the systems that they have. The structures yeah. are very different, but I think the the index that you're that you're using is really clever. Yeah to encourage competition because ev- no one wants to be left behind, uh, especially for something where ev- this is, is, is associated with broader prosperity. Every politician wants to bring prosperity uh, 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 to their country. And this is, a, this is something that they can point to, to to indicate some improvement. I mean, that just by itself is structured to try to encourage some better out- or some better policies for these governments. Um, That's right. I mean, one of the uh, as as a scholar, I'm actually less interested in the rankings, like who's number two or four. I'm yeah. interested actually in the ratings, you know, the actual numbers. Yeah. Uh, but but you know, politicians and journalists, the the rankings drive everything because you know if if you go down, you know, like your score could go up, but your ranking could fall if other countries have grown faster. And uh, that turns out to be, like you say, a very motivational force for politicians who want to be able to say, hey, we went up in a ranking. Um, so they, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, uh, like political 
device in that regard. And it really wasn't our intention to make it one like that, but that's just the way it, it works out. Well, that actually brings up a really interesting point that I wanted to ask you about, which is you're interested in the ratings, which means that it's not everyone's not not standing in place or are competing yeah. over just the number one spot. Is the world getting more economically free over time? Yeah. Yes. According to our data, yes, unambiguously mm-hmm. so. And I know I know that kind of runs against unambiguously so. Yeah. I mean, well, but, pretty much. Uh, and I know that runs a counter to the sort of the the general malaise and pessimism that we always seem to have at any point in time. But uh, the fact of the matter is, if you think about, we st- the index goes back to 1970 in terms of its scoring. If you think about the era of 1970, I mean, the early 70s, we had wage and price controls in the United States. We had borderline hyperinflation in the United This is the United States. Right? Mm-hmm. Imagine yeah. what it's like in the rest of the world. We had tariff rates that were an order of magnitude higher than they are today. So tariffs have come down across the globe. We had, we had military conscription in the early 70s, and lots of countries did. And that's a major violation of people's economic freedom. When, you, when the government says you have to work for us, you can't take the job you wanted to take. You have to work for us. So we, have, we, you know, we had conscription. We had hyperinflation. We had much higher tariffs. Government spending was actually, in many countries, higher. Now it's actually the U.S. It was, we've gone up in spending. But as a, as a group, it's, it's almost every country's gone up in the index in a rating sense. The only countries that have gone down are, the, are like four or five at the bottom, like the Venezuelas. And Venezuela's is tragic. I mean, Venezuela was in the top 20 in 1970, and now it's dead last, you know, 165 out of 165. But it really stands out as the exception. Almost every country's gone up, even like, you know, Africa. I mean, African socialists, most of the countries in Africa after they were became independent from their colonial rule, they, they went socialist. And, and the ratings were terrible. I mean, on a 10-point scale, they were 2 and 3 and 4, really, really low. And now they're 4 and 5 and 6, which isn't great, but, you know, a 5 is much better than a 2. So we've seen a huge improvement. Um, and it's it slowed down in the last, uh, say, 10 or 15 years. The rate of increase in economic freedom in our scoring has, has slowed down, but it's still positive. We're still seeing an, uh, an upward trend on the average around the world. I think that is incredibly surprising to a lot of people. Um, I mean, for one, it, a, a lot of politics and news tends to be dour in general. Um, but the, this idea that, for one, I think a lot of people don't recognize that the world is, in fact, becoming more prosperous. And I think from the work that, that you're doing, it's like a lot of that can be attributed to increases in economic liberty. Uh, so what's going on? Why, are, why is the world becoming more free? Uh, it's, it's a, you know, that's a really good question. I don't have a strong answer. I mean, uh, you know, I'm a professor. I'd like to say, well, they listen to our lectures. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know that, that like our Maybe. lectures or, or this book, but, um, you know, uh, the, the reforms in China are, I think, instructive. Uh, when Deng Xiaoping began the reforms after Mao died and Deng Xiaoping in, in 1978, uh, uh, what was his line? He, his line was, I don't care. Um, uh, I don't care what, whether the cat's a socialist. I just care if the cat can hunt. Like uh, we entered a period in the in the 80s and 90s of pragmatism in government and ideological rigor, especially on the left. The hard like Mao's China transformed into Deng Xiaoping's ju- you know Chinese juggernaut. 
Um, and that was done because they liberalized the economy. They opened up the economy to private enterprise. They lowered, uh, you know, opened themselves up to global trade. And China's rating isn't very good in our index, but it's, you know, you know, a hundred times better than it would have been under Mao's uh, time. And so it was a pragmatic approach by lots of governments. That That's frustrating to, a, you know, to someone like me who's an advocate for economic freedom because pragmatists are only going to take that, that economic freedom so far. Uh, but, but that was the era we, we were in. Um, and uh, I think, we've, again, we've seen a little bit of a slowdown there. I think we're seeing, seeing a bit of a return to ideolo- ideology in governance now. Uh, we're seeing more ideological-type talk whether it's uh, sort of um, the populist right, you know, uh, or the populist left, uh, but the '80s and '90s, it was, it was Clinton and Thatcher. It was, it was, you know, it was Clinton. It was Tony Blair. It was, you know, it was just white lab coats, just trying to figure out what works, and taking out the ideology, the left's ideology, especially, um, opened that window to things like, you know, cutting taxes and the WTO and reducing privatization and things like that. Um, again, it's, I think it's kind of coming to a close now, uh, but it's, it's still a little bit out there. Although I think it's interesting that you point at ideology is one of the reasons why uh, uh, progress in, in greater economic freedom may be slowing, because there is an ideology that supports greater economic freedom too. But the beauty of your work is that it takes it beyond just that ideology. Is saying that, no, there are practical consequences from heading in this direction. We can be ideological about this, and I think people can do a better job of selling ideas, but there, there's some real practical effects here. And if you want better outcomes, this is the way you got to head. Yeah, I mean, we absolutely need theory. We need, we need theory. We call it an ideology if you want. We need a set mm-hmm. of ideas, and that's what ideology is. It's a set of ideas. So we need a set of ideas to guide us and how we think about things. Indeed, just collecting the data that we use in economic freedom required some set of ideas. It required an ideology about what economic freedom means. But once you have the numbers, um, it turns out to be very effective in disarming skeptics. You know, uh, if you lead, if you've got a, a skeptic of economic freedom that you're talking to, if you just lead with an ideological discussion, you know, you're wrong and here's my ideas, my ideas are right. People get very defensive. They shut down. If you lead with, hey, here's these numbers, these egghead economists, uh, you know, in Dallas and Tallahassee, you know, concocted, people are like, oh, there's some numbers. Well, what do the numbers mean? They slow down. And I think it takes away some of the defenses that they have if you lead with an ideological attack. And then, you know, maybe after we look at the numbers, we can say, hey, like, why are these numbers? And that's where you go back to, like, you know, the Hayek and the Friedman ideas. Uh, the reason economic freedom works, we, we think we know, and that comes from those ideas. But uh, I, would, I like to lead with the numbers and then come back with the ideology. And a lot of people do it the reverse. And I think that that doesn't work as effectively. At least it doesn't work as effectively for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can the United States do better at? Oh, a lot. So I, I should have mentioned the U.S. is actually one of those exceptions. Now, we're still very highly rated. The most recent report uh, that's going to come out is going to have the U.S. fifth. Uh, but the U.S. score actually topped out in the year 2000. So from 2000 to the present, and our most recent data will be 2021. We're always a couple years lagged. But uh, so for the last 20 years the U.S. has been declining in our economic freedom score. Um, and so 
Uh, what's happened in the last 20 years, first and foremost, is there's been a fairly dramatic increase in the size of government in a, in a tax and spend sense. You know, first it was the war on terrorism, and then the actual wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq. There was uh, the financial crisis in the late uh, 2000s, and then more re most recently, of course, COVID. All of that was were excuses on the part of the U.S. government, um, state and local, to just dump money at, at problems. But it's also now becoming, an, we're seeing, you know, maybe it's abating a little bit, but we're seeing, an, we saw a, a tick in inflation. And one of the areas we measure is monetary instability. And we've certainly seen some monetary instability lately. Um, the U.S. is kind of become a laggard on international trade. Uh, as you probably know, neither political party right now is, is advocating for lower tariffs and more openness to global markets. Um, I think both parties are, are, are soft on that at, at best and hostile at worst. And so the U.S. is now not looking that good in terms of, our, in terms of free trade policies. Um, and so you know, we had a big movement towards freer trade under Reagan, Bush, Clinton, and even into uh, W. Bush, H.W. Bush, or George Bush. And then it's kind of abated. So, you know, trade policy's gotten worse, inflation's gotten worse, government spending's gotten worse. Uh, even, our even our property right numbers have gotten worse. Um, and that's a little bit harder and more concerning, probably. Um, the, there's a worry, I think, on the part of a lot of people that uh, our court system and our rule of law has weakened. And that's what we're seeing in the, in the survey data that we, we use as well. So that's hard to fix, though, I've got to say. Now, well, to, to talk to these about these specific areas where the United States has been lagging, now, it seems like fights over these specific sub-indices are rarely about overall prosperity or overall economic freedoms. I mean, minimum wage is part of the index, and the arguments about it are not, is this going to hinder economic yeah. liberty? It is, is this going to lead to lower wages and, uh, and loss of uh, jobs for low-income workers? Should we actually care more about the effects and broader liberty? Well, I, I think so. I think that one of the things we have learned from this index is that uh, uh, how economic freedom is a bundle of policies. It's not one policy. It's not the absence of minimum wage. It's the absence of minimum wage. It's also tariff policy. It's also monetary policy and tax policy and so forth. And Jim Gortney, my co-author, and I, frequently use a metaphor of a car. And if you ask people like, what's the most important ingredient in a car? Is it the mm -hmm. steering wheel or the wheels or the brakes? Well, I mean, they're all important. If you take away any one of those ingredients, the car's either not going to work at all or it's going to be extraordinarily dangerous. And I feel the same way about economic freedom. Um, you know, tax policy is important. And if you mess it up, you will really mess up an economy. Uh, monetary policy is really important. If you mess it up, you're going to, you can turn, you can keep everything else perfect. And, you know, so I think that the, one of the values of the index is it does give us a little bit of a, a step back position where we step back from the particular policies and kind of look at the whole set of policies. And it's not, you can mess up, a, you know, you can mess up one of them a little bit. You know, if, you're, if your air pressure is a little low on your tire, your car is still going to work. But, you know, so you can have a minimum wage, but if you set your minimum wage at 50 bucks an hour, that's going to be a problem. All right. So no country gets a perfect 10 on our score. Um, but countries that get, eights, nines, kind of across the board, they end up doing really well. And it's the countries that get, you know, 
you know, twos and threes and fours and fives. They, they, those are the ones, those are the ones that struggle. Um, so you can debate the individual particular pieces, uh, and people do. And then policymakers, you know, obviously do. Uh, we have the luxury as academics of standing back and saying, hey, let's look at the big picture here. Countries that get most of these policies right do really well. And so the key is to get most of the policies right, you know. Um, and what the U.S. has done, if you ask to the U.S., what the U.S. has done the last 20 years really is to move most of the policies in the wrong direction. So I wanted to do, do just a little bit of summary of, over this over this project, which is we developed an index to tried really hard to, to measure economic liberty. We think it's really important. We put this out. People found that it, it really is associated with broad based good economic outcomes of, uh, of and you, if you have economic liberty, you tend to have a place that uh, uh, that does better off, not just and not just for the wealthy or the elite people, but for everyone. Um, there may be an, a link with obesity, though, for reasons that you that you specified. Um, that in crafting this thing, you found that it's it it actually has gotten attention. Like this could have been something that has been completely ignored. It's like, well, that's a nice index, but we, we really don't care. But in fact, some places have really taken this seriously. And you've cited just three examples of Hong Kong, Georgia, and South Africa. Uh, and some other places because I pay attention to this. I, uh, I want, I want the United States to do better off on, on, on this index. Um, and so that is something I actually want you to reflect on the work that you've done. Like that seems like it, it's surprising and encouraging for you. Oh, and the other surprising and encouraging thing, the world is actually better off and people are more free than they used to be. So can you reflect on some of the, uh, uh, on your work on this issue? Yeah. I mean, certainly all of that is, is gratifying me, especially the last part. I mean, it's, we've lived through a, a wonderful period, the last 20, 30, 40 years of, worldwide global poverty reduction literally with a b billions of people are now living dignified you know lives material lives that otherwise weren't in the old older days um i gotta say that um more narrowly though the thing that brings me the most gratification is the scholarly in fact i'm an academic you know mm -hmm. I, I work at a university what really kind of makes me happy is when other academics use our work and we've penetrated the academic market quite nicely as well. We have quite literally thousands upon thousands of academic citations. And I realize that a lot of people kind of think academics are, you know, we're writing papers and no one reads them and, and so forth. But if you get thousands and thousands and thousands of papers written with your data, you are actually affecting the scholarly climate of opinion. And and the scholarly climate opinion does actually filter down. We're teaching students. We're teaching, the, you know, we're teaching the next generation of congressmen and senators and presidents, and and that climate of ideas really matters. And I, I think this index has has played a role in improving that that climate. It's a longer game, though. It's it's much much more long game than say policy debates. 